We are in uh, Matthew chapter eight. Uh, yeah, Matthew chapter eighteen. I looked over and I saw Luke because we're going to be looking at a little bit in Luke too. Uh, kind of freaked me out for a second. Where am I? Um, Matthew eighteen verses ten through fourteen, and uh, Luke chapter fifteen. Uh, there's a, a parallel passage, and uh, we're, we're going to be looking at both of those. Uh, because the, the the two passages have a lot in common. They're basically the exact same parable, except they're not given at the same time in Jesus' ministry. Uh, at least there's not good evidence that they are. Um, they, they happen during different times, and the reason we can see that is because um, even though the two passages in, in Matthew... 18 and Luke 15 are almost identical to one another. Um, neither one of them is recorded in the book of Mark. And while you are studying the Gospels, keep in mind there are four Gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Okay, Three of those four are called the Synoptic Gospels because they basically give a synopsis of the life and ministry of Christ. And that would be Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John, he's different. Okay, John had a different purpose, a different audience, and a different style for his gospel. So why do I point out that this, that this particular passage and the parallel in Luke are not found in Mark? Well, as a general rule, uh, number one, Mark is considered to be the earliest gospel written. Uh, Mark was written probably by John Mark, who got most of his material from Peter. And most conservative scholars today recognize that Mark, John Mark, probably wrote this during Paul's first missionary journey. If you remember, when Paul and Barnabas started their trip up through Galatia and the various little islands south of Turkey, that there came to be a dispute because John Mark left. For whatever reason, he separated from them and went back to Jerusalem. It is probably while he was separated from them that he wrote the gospel according to Mark, as we know it. So that's number one, Mark wrote his first, but when you look at the gospels between the three, and this is, this is general, rarely if ever, Will you find something in Matthew and Luke that doesn't happen in Mark? You will quite often find things in Matthew and Mark that Luke didn't record, and you'll find things in Mark and Luke that Matthew didn't record. But you'll never see agreement between Matthew and Luke that's not in Mark. That's just a general rule that we have found over the years of studying the New Testament. So with all of that being said, um, we are, like I said, in Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse 10, going through verse 14. So if you all would stand with me. Hear the word of the Lord. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, 
Does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your concern for your children, for the way you love us and seek after us when we wander away. Father, I pray this morning that we would look at your word, that we would read it to understand it, we would read it to be transformed into the likeness of Christ. We pray that everything we say and do here today glorifies him. Through Christ, amen. Please have a seat. So we're going to start here in verse 10. Jesus says, don't despise. See to it that you don't despise one of these little ones. Well, let's reset just a little bit, go back to context. When we say these little ones, as we've been looking at from uh, verse 5 all the way through up to verse 9, when Jesus is talking about these little ones, he's talking about young believers. He's talking about those who have that childlike faith, that humility before Christ, recognizing that we're totally and wholly dependent on him for our salvation, right? Okay. So he tells the disciples, make sure you don't despise somebody like that. The Greek word that is translated as despise can also mean to have contempt for. Because in English, despise is a pretty strong word, right? I mean, you have you have hatred, you have loathing, and then you have despise. I, I, if I despise someone, I don't want to see them. I don't want to be in their presence. I don't even like thinking about them, right? But to have contempt for, that's something that we have a pretty good mental picture of what that looks like, right? Um. When we consider this, that he's telling us not to have contempt for these little ones, this admonition applies just as much to the church today as it did to the church 2,000 years ago. There are times, and, and I know this is painful, I know I'm going to be stomping on toes. Um, I stomped on my own while I was writing my notes. So, y'all in good company, all right? There are times that us more mature believers will be confronted with a younger believer, one who still has that childlike faith, and we greet them with contempt, right? You get the new believer, the new member to the church, and they come in and they're fired up, and hey, maybe we can do it. And somebody in the church is going to respond with, just sit down, ease up just a little bit, let me explain to you how this works. You ever seen that happen? Because I have. And, I'm ashamed to say, I've been guilty of it. Sometimes we make sure they understand that the Christian life is a marathon, not a 100-yard dash. Now, that's not a bad thing. Tell them that they need to maybe temper their excitement just a little bit and think their way through some of the things that they're trying to do. There's nothing wrong with that. But sometimes it goes farther where we actually actively 
desire and sometimes make it happen, that they get to see their thoughts and their ideas fail. Sometimes we might even get to the point where we intentionally torpedo those ideas because they make us uncomfortable. They might make us uncomfortable because we don't want to be a participant, because we don't have the time or the energy. They might make us uncomfortable because we feel guilty that we aren't doing that. So what happens after that that occurs a few times is they start to get jaded like we do, like we have. They start to become more cynical like we have. Now let me go back to what Jesus said about that childlike faith. Remember that childlike faith is a faith that is humble and not cynical. So in other words, Jesus is telling the church, don't shut them down and turn them into grumpy old people like you are. Let me me give you a story that I heard. This was in one of my leadership classes. And when I heard this, I thought that it was probably the most apt explanation of how churches work I've ever encountered. Scientists did this experiment. They take a cage, and in this cage they put ten chimpanzees. In the center of the cage they put a stepladder, and above the stepladder they put a bunch of bananas. Okay? So what's going to happen? Eventually, one of the, one or more of the chimpanzees is going to climb that ladder to get to the bananas, right? As soon as the chimpanzee climbs to the top of the ladder, from all sides, they spray the cage with a high-pressure, extremely cold-water fire hose. All of the chimpanzees get wet. And they repeat this process until the chimpanzees have learned, don't climb the ladder. And then they take one of the chimpanzees out. They put a new one in. And what's the new guy going to do when he gets in there and he sees a ladder with the bananas hanging over top of it? He's going to climb the ladder, at which point everybody in the cage gets doused with high-pressure cold water. So what do they do the next time that new guy starts to climb the ladder? Sit down. Now, once that chimpanzee learns, they take another one of the old ones out, they put another new one in, and repeat this process until there are ten chimpanzees in the cage who sit around and look at the bunch of bananas hanging over top of the ladder, but never climb it. And they have no idea why. How many times have we encountered a new thought in the church and the instant reaction to that new thought is, no, we've never done that before. As a matter of fact, I think that's one of the lines in the Baptist faith and message. Um, We are too quick to get cynical like the monkeys in the cage. We may not know why we are afraid to do things that are different, but when somebody pops up with a new idea, we might not physically beat them down, but I'll guarantee you that we will spiritually and emotionally shut them down. 
And that's what Jesus is talking about when he says, don't have contempt for these little ones. In fact, we ought to look at them the same way we look at that baby in the church. Because when I look over there, when I look at the kids in the front row, or second row, when I look at kids in the church, I don't see energy that I have to suppress. I see a generation with ideas and energy to reach people that I can't reach. That should make my faith more childlike, not less. I said should. Does it always work? No. So that's why Jesus tells them to watch out that we don't despise these little ones. And he makes this statement here. I tell you in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who's in heaven. I really don't think Jesus is launching into a discussion on the study of angels. I don't think he's trying to get us thinking about angels and, you know, this is not NBC or ABC television touched by an angel and highway to heaven and all those kind of things. Terrible theology, by the way. Um, an angel is a messenger, right? Well, let's, let's take two groups of people within the church. You have those with the childlike faith. And you have those with the codger faith, okay? The grumpy old coot. You're not alone, (laughs) okay? All right? The fact of the matter is we all spend time on this end of the spectrum because life is hard and we often forget the things that Jesus told us about what it's going to cost to practice our faith. And so we get jaded, and so we get calloused, and so we get over here, right? Now, if you consider that there's probably stuff going on in heaven that we don't know about, right? Who do you think it is that gets more attention in God's mind those that are actively on fire and childlike in their faith, trying to go out and reach everybody they can with the gospel, or those of us that come here every morning to apply one hour's worth of 98.6 degrees to that seat. Which one? Probably the more childlike faith, right? Jesus is underlining the importance of those that he has come to find. Those that he has come to seek. Those that he has come to reach. And oh, by the way, they're the ones that we've been sent to reach. Now, Liam, can you put the verse back up on board, please? The original one fall asleep next page okay go back what verse we got 1810 go forward 
1812. All right. If your copy, your translation has a verse 11, it reads, The Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. Okay. Let me assure you, that verse was not removed from other translations. The majority of the manuscripts of Matthew that we have, the majority, that means the bigger number, do not have that verse in the text. It only appears in one or two manuscripts that are much further removed in time from the original writing of the Gospel. If we consider that the Gospel of Matthew was written probably somewhere around the year 70-ish, 60 or 70 A.D., the manuscripts that have that verse are from eight or 900 A.D., and there's only one or two of them. The majority of the manuscripts that we have from, say, one or 200 A.D. don't. So, it is almost certain that that particular verse was copied from chapter 19 in order to make a smooth transition for the reader from what Jesus says here about the little ones and their angels to the parable that he gives in verses 12, 13, and 14. If you have a translation like mine that does not have a verse 11, there's probably a footnote, there's probably a bracket or something to tell you what I just said. If you do have a verse 11, it may even have brackets around it with a footnote that says this verse is not included in the majority of manuscripts. In either case, whether you have it or not, this verse is not a verse on which any essential doctrine of Christianity stands or falls. Okay? It is in Luke chapter 19, even in my translation, I can go find it, right? But the sentiment of that verse, whether your translation has it or not, can be found in verses 12 through 14 very plainly. Verse 12, which is parallel with Luke chapter 15, um, in verse 12, Jesus says, What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? If he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should not perish. In Luke chapter 15, basically the same parable. The person has a hundred sheep, one of them wanders off, the shepherd leaves ninety-nine who are content to be right where the shepherd left them, and the shepherd goes to find the one that wandered away. When he does find it, what does Jesus say? Rejoices. The shepherd rejoices over that one 
more than over the 99. Think about context. Think about what Jesus has been talking about. These little ones who've placed their faith in Jesus and trust him for all things. Don't hold them in contempt. Don't despise them. The shepherd has a hundred sheep, right? Some of those sheep are the little ones. They're new believers. They're young believers. And some of those sheep are more seasoned. The ones that are more seasoned are less likely to wander off. But all hundred of them, he knows them by name. He talks with them along the way. All of those passages, I love the the imagery of the shepherd in John's gospel. It's one of the best parts of John's gospel is the way he uses the picture of Jesus as the good, excuse me, the good shepherd, right? I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. My sheep know my voice. I am the door of the sheepfold, a big open pen. And in order for the sheep to come out, they have to go through Jesus, right? This this picture here of the shepherd, the shepherd cares for them enough to fight the wolf barehanded, to fight the bear and the lion. Think about David as he was a shepherd. He writes in the Psalms that he fought off the bear and the lion to protect his sheep. What a picture of the love that Jesus has for his people. The one who wanders away isn't just a number to that shepherd. Now, we didn't have sheep, we had cows, right? And we did not necessarily know them by name. We knew them by characteristics. You know, the ones that were particularly stupid and get themselves lost in the woods, the ones that were particularly obstinate and would jump over the fence, the ones that were really good for producing milk, the ones that were, eh, right? If the cows got called back to the barn and one of them wasn't there when it was milking time, And I can attest to this. We didn't empty the barn out and put them all back out to pasture. No, we tied up those 99 and then went slogging through the pastures to try to find that one that was missing. Because that one was not just a number. Now, we weren't nearly as friendly with our cattle as the shepherd is with the sheep. We did talk to them, but it was much less complimentary, um, especially chasing that one back from the woods or wherever they were lost. This makes sense to me, that that one is important. But now you might ask the question, what about the 99? The The shepherd left the 99 undefended on the hillside. Didn't he care about the 99? Well, take take a look over at, at the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15, right? Verses 1 through, I'm sorry, verses 4 through 7. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, doesn't leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that's lost till he finds it? This must be a common theme. This must not be strange, right? 
He gives us another parable in Luke chapter 15. What woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one, doesn't light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? Right? That's a little bit better picture. Yeah, you left those nine silver coins undefended while you were tearing your house apart. Right? Now, now, ten silver coins might not sound like a lot, but the coins that they are talking about here were the equivalent of one day's wage. Yeah, exactly. Yes. So if I have 10 days worth of my paycheck laying around the house in cash and I lose one day's worth of that paycheck, you can bet I'm going to be tearing the house apart looking for that one day's worth of pay. And then the one that makes even more sense to us is the parable of the prodigal. That one's a whole lot longer. I'm not going to go into the whole thing, but you know the story. The father has two sons, and one of the sons says, Hey, I'm old enough now, I want my inheritance so I can enjoy it while I'm young. So the father gives him his money, he goes off, he spends it on wine, women, and song, and he winds up slopping pigs. And so broke that he's envying what the pigs are eating. Now we didn't do pigs often, but the couple of times that we did do pigs, I'd have to be in a pretty low state to envy what the pigs have to eat. And so he goes back to his father and he offers to become a servant for his father. And when his father sees him, he comes running, he throws his arms around him, <coughs> and he treats him like royalty. That question, what about the 99? The end of the parable of the prodigal. Look at verse 25 of Luke chapter 15. Because that son asks the same question. The older son was in the field. He came and drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing. He called one of the servants and asked what was going on. The servant told him, Your brother's come. Your father's killed the fattened calf because he's received back his son safe and sound. But the older brother was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and, and, and begged him to come in. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. You never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate. But when this son of yours, not my brother, this son of yours, came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him? How does the father answer? You were always here. So when it comes to the question of the 99... They are called the 99 who did not stray. The 99 who were always there. The 99 who were consistent in their walk. That doesn't mean they were always consistent. That doesn't mean they didn't always have the opportunity to wander off on their own. But at that point... In, in Luke chapter 15, if you go back to verse 1 of that, verses 1 and 2, we see why Jesus uses those parables for that particular point in his ministry. In verses 1 and 2, it says the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes lost their minds. They were grumbling, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Oh, the horror! What does that show about their understanding of what it means to be a sinner?
they obviously had not heard Paul's teaching that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? So Jesus shows that it's his mission to reach those who are lost. Who do you think the 99 represent? They're described as the ones who have not wandered, the ones who have not gone astray. In Luke, Jesus says they're the righteous people who have no need of repentance. Who's he talking to in Luke 15? The scribes and the Pharisees who've got their self-righteous noses in the air. And why is Jesus eating with dirty people? Because I came for the dirty people, not the ones who obviously don't need any repentance. Let's throw a little bit of context back into Matthew chapter 18. The little ones, the ones who are eager but young in their faith, the ones who are energetic, who are likely to go wandering off down the hillside. The ones that Jesus came for. Not the stodgy, old, crusty, grumpy, grouchy, cynical, I don't have a need for Jesus to come save me, I'm doing everything for Him. It gets a little bit more painful, doesn't it? Remember what Matthew uh, wrote about Jesus' teaching about those who tempt the little ones? <laughs> the little ones sin and, and need to repent? That would be the sheep that has wandered off. Now, I do want you to pay close attention to verse 5 in Luke's gospel, because this is going to hurt. Luke 15, verse 5. It says, when he finds the one that wandered off, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. Why would the shepherd lay the sheep on his shoulders? To carry a home. Why would he need to carry a home? Because it can't wander off. Because Middle Eastern shepherds, when they had a young sheep that would wander off, would break one or two legs. And then they would have to carry the sheep everywhere. Now, they would, they would bind the legs. They would, they would bind them so that they would heal, and the sheep would eventually gain mobility. This wasn't a permanent maiming, but this was a disciplinary correction. The shepherd would go and retrieve it. He would break one or two of the legs, bind the wound. They would eventually heal. But in that time, the sheep had to learn to trust the shepherd. Because if the sheep needed food, the shepherd had to take it and lay it down in a pasture. And you know sheep. They're dumb enough even when they have working legs. They'll just stand there and eat their way to bedrock. So the shepherd would have to move it to grass and move it to grass and move it to water. And when the sheep were scattered because of a wolf, the shepherd would have to fight them off. And that sheep had to trust that shepherd for everything. And so once the legs were healed, that sheep wouldn't wander off anymore because they had become like that. 
Sounds a lot like the process of spiritual discipline, doesn't it? (laughs) We go wandering off, and the shepherd comes and finds us. And while we may not get a physical (laughs) broken leg, spiritually we go through a process that's that painful. And Jesus tries and tries and tries to teach us to rely on him for everything. And it's painful. And it comes with consequences. So, going back to Matthew... Is it any surprise that the shepherd rejoices over the one that he brings back? Now, some of us, most of us, will spend a good deal of our lives sitting over here with the 99. Hopefully, as we mature in our faith, we spend more and more of our time over here with the 99. But every now and again, we occasionally wander off and we have to be brought back. And so Jesus says, we need to take care that we keep our faith childlike. That we're like the 99 who trust him. And rely on Him and don't wander off on our own. But now, that doesn't mean that we give up our energy. That doesn't mean we give up our ideas. That doesn't mean we give up on trying to find ways to carry the gospel to more people. That means we trust in Christ to get the word out. He said He's going to use us, right? He said it's our mission, right? So do we trust Him or not? Because I tell you, the one that wanders off, you know what that one wanders off into? Disobedience. Oh, we never do that. Yeah. So, when Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth, is, heaven and earth has been given unto me, Go, therefore, make disciples of all people, teaching them all that I have commanded you, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That particular phrase is given in the form of the imperative, for all of you language people. An imperative statement is a sentence that does not have an expressed subject, but it carries with it the weight of command. So Jesus says, go therefore and do what? Make disciples. So while we might think that we're playing good in part of the 99, by not wandering off while we sit in our sanctuary and we come to church every Sunday and we come on Sunday night and we occasionally come on Wednesdays and we do all of those things, if we're not obeying what God's called us to do, 
were actually the one who's wandered off that Jesus is going to find and he's going to discipline.